Femoral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. The musical world is a rich tapestry. And yet, the sonic homogeneity of our epoch can be deadening. One, two, three, four. For all the artists working in the fringes, who are making brilliant music without a mainstream platform, how do we amplify those voices? That's where Matt Worth comes in. My name is Matt Worth, and I am the proprietor of Revenge RVNG International. When Matt founded the Revenge label in 2003, he came in with a lot of hands-on experience. Before running a record label, I was running a record label. I've kind of always been running record labels. I was a part of the punk rock scene in Little Rock, Arkansas, where I grew up. In high school, an established record label was handed down to me in a kind of ceremonial or maybe non-ceremonial way. The previous tenant was leaving on tour and needed someone to kind of look over mail order. I walked into a situation with a label with international distribution and a big catalog and learned my way around from there and never looked back. I moved to New York City, discovered dance music, electronic music, still love punk rock, but was participating in that world quite a bit more than the scene that I grew up in. Revenge was kind of like a punk rock label in a dance music community. Akin to punk rock, Revenge was founded on the basis of a moral code, one that emphasizes the ethic of doing it yourself. It's just fair. DIY is the fair shake. Almost literally, not that we still rely on handshake deals, but we still maintain a 50-50 net profit deal with all of our artists. We still encourage artist participation and autonomy and and self-starting. Keeping their principles in the driver's seat, revenge has mutated a lot over the last 18 years. We went from kind of applying the same punk rock practices, spray painting, the DJ mix covers, hand collating everything, to finding distribution, shape-shifting from dance music into more esoteric, avant-garde, experimental music. We've never really followed one specific genre. Instead, just kind of followed an instinct. That's essentially informed the evolution of the label more than anything. Adaptability to new music and a very open attitude and heart toward new sound. While Revenge does a tremendous job breaking and promoting new artists, their efforts also extend into reinvigorating existing material. Just like Revenge is agnostic to genre, It's more of an intuitive feeling, which kind of new music we get involved with. The same concept applies to archival music, except maybe the spin is that we choose to focus on artists that didn't really have a fair shake the first time around. 
or whose music was appreciated but maybe underexplored at the time. We tend to favor musicians that were doing it themselves then, too. So you'll see throughout the archival division a lot of home-produced music. There's that spirit of autonomy, the idea that these musicians were doing it for themselves with some hope that it would transmit beyond their home studios or beyond the 50 cassettes they were duplicating and sending out. Our first archival record was Synthesis by Harold Groskopf, originally released early 80s. Groskopf was a staple in German krautrock bands and then went off to make this extremely synthetic record compelled by his live drumming. There was not a huge market for reissues at the time. There were certainly a few labels that had started as reissue labels and had huge catalogs from the beginning. But in our sector, there just wasn't a lot of people going deep on reissues. Honestly, it felt like Harold's record was contemporary to our catalog, and it just made sense to contextualize it with what we were doing. Synthesis was like a straight one-to-one reissue, and we had fun mutating the experience around the album. We used different artwork. We included a disc of reinterpretations of Harold's music, obviously created all new context with liner notes to add a little bit more texture, a little bit more color. The next one was Sensations Fix, the project of an Italian musician named Franco Falsini, who was making music in the early 70s through the mid-70s of Sensations Fix. For that one, we went through his archives and compiled a 2LP set. That covered the full Sensations Fix gamut and blasted apart the chronology. It wasn't like 71 through 75, side A to side D. It was how we responded to the sequence. From there, we visited the archives of Kay Limer an amazing bedroom producer, composer from Seattle. And then we reissued Craig Leon's Nomos and Visiting, a pair of records that he made in the early 80s. Craig was a fixture in the downtown New York scene, famously the producer of the first Ramones record, Blondie, The Fall, and then went off to make this highly experimental electronic record. From there, we went through Ariel Kalma's archives, French saxophone player who melded his wind instruments with synthesizers. Redwoman, the character, the myth-making of Anna Homler, 
which was also a collaboration with Stephen Moshier. Went back to Kate Limer's archives to release Savant Ensemble with other Seattle musicians doing like a Brian Eno, David Byrne sample vibe. In the grooves of this record, many light beams. Syrinx, which was a Canadian trio pioneering Moog synthesizers. Pauline Ennestrom, again, an archival effort to go through all of her independently released work. Mark Renner, a musician from Baltimore in the 80s, making Drudy Column-esque, shimmering, UK-influenced, guitar-driven music. Michelle Mercure, a collection of her self-released music from the 80s. And that was the most recent before Peter Ivers, which was our catalog number nine, and then took another six years to actually release. Developing the album that would be titled Becoming Peter Ivers began a unique journey for Matt through the archives of another person's ephemera. The best way to get to know Peter is through his music. I really wish I could just like carry around the little Peter toy box that I could open and crank and it would play Miraculous Weekend or 18 and Dreaming. Peter grew up in Massachusetts. Bypassing his childhood, he ended up at Harvard in the late 60s, joined by so many other wild, imaginative characters. Fight fiercely, Harvard. Fight, fight, fight. Demonstrate to them our skill. From Doug Kenny, who <laughs> founded National Lampoon. Hi there, friends and neighbors. Stoggard Channing. Hello, Gumdrop. John Lithgow. It's 1994! There was explosive creativity happening all around Peter. He gravitated towards music. He would make trips out to Chicago to study blues, harp players, and come back with that knowledge, sharpening his harmonica playing skills. He would help create music for his friend Tim Mayer's theater productions at Harvard, and then ended up making his own record, still in college or just out of college, called Night of the Blue Communion. which is kind of the Zappa-esque free-for-all that somehow ended up on Epic Records because Peter barged in on a meeting that he wasn't really invited to. This is all happening to Peter before he's 25. Tonight, another myth from Massachusetts. Fresh slices of Osiris litter to the city. The cock of the walk, the talk of the town, waits for his hawk-headed son to come down and assemble him. Will the result resemble him? The record flopped, but Peter was determined and headed out to California. He eventually was signed to Warner Brothers by Van Dyke Parks. 
who at the time was doing A&R but had more notably produced the Beach Boys music and his own fantastical orchestrated music. Peter had another shot at stardom Ladies and gentlemen. or pop success gentlemen of the Academy and fellow suckers. with this new deal and submitted a highly avant pop record called Terminal Love for his debut on Warner Brothers. It's a masterpiece by my estimation, but again, it didn't quite connect. But even with a string of less than successes, Peter's individualism remained intact and doors continued to open before him. I think there was a belief in Peter around the label. He really brought such a magnetic energy to any environment. It created a support system for his antics. Around the time of Eternal Love, he opened for Fleetwood Mac. Famously, he wore a diaper on stage and threw hot dogs at the audience. A lot of people look at that as this self-sabotaging tactic, but Peter was genuinely interested in transforming the audience expectations and felt that that was the best way that he could go out and win over a Fleetwood Mac crowd. It didn't work so well, obviously. It makes a great story. But he remained connected in the music world, got to make another record with Gary Wright, who famously wrote and produced Dreamweaver for his second Warner Brothers album that, again, did not perform. Around that time, he was introduced to David Lynch via a friend named Steve Martin, not to be confused with that Steve Martin. Nonetheless, a very instrumental figure in Peter's life who ran a midnight cinema in L.A. that kind of broke David Lynch's career by showing Eraserhead for several years. I thought I heard a stranger. We've got chicken tonight. The soundtrack of David Lynch's seminal film is made up of mostly amplified ambience. Fats Waller's swinging pipe organ and one signature sing-along As our main character lays awake in bed, we peer inside the radiator to reveal a checkered stage upon which a smiling blonde with swollen cheeks dances the two-step and sings to camera. Peter wrote In Heaven, which became a centerpiece of that film. That's Peter's voice, by the way. A lot of people primarily know Peter through that song. You know, the the most famous song I wrote is called In Heaven, don't you? No. Are you serious? The song in Eraserhead is called In Heaven. Which certainly is a testament to his songwriting and the weird affect of Peter's sensibilities but is just one part of a, a huge catalog of music. In heaven, everything is fine in 
a studious home recorder in the house that he and Lucy Fisher, his girlfriend of many years, lived. He almost had a monkish, ascetic practice of recording music every single day. And he left this incredible trail of music in various stages, which ultimately became focal to our collection. He was also a black belt in karate. He was a yoga master. And exhale. He was on the scene. He was a social butterfly and clubs and all these different contexts. And I think that's how he ended up hosting New Wave Theater. Hi, welcome to New Wave Theater. It was a custom in ancient Greece to pass a skeleton around the table before every banquet to remind everyone of their mortality. Which was a seminal cable access show in Los Angeles in the early 80s. New Wave Theater fearlessly documented a scene which arose from the discontent and uncertainty of the youth of the country. That broke a lot of punk rock bands. Suburban Lawns, janitor! Suburban Lawns, Dead Kennedys, Black Flag. He kind of walked into that situation treating it as a gig. What are, what are you projecting by the way, your presentation of the music? Well, most of our songs are rags, you know? I mean, we're just, we're talking about outmoded sensibilities. Outmoded sensibilities like freedom? Like surf culture. <laughs> Famously, as host, he presented all these monologues before bands would play that have become so synonymous with him. Hey, every geekle has an unconscious idea of what good art is. The New Wave Theater Drill Bit survey says real art always has some stack of the unknown woven into its spine. Yes, there's nothing like the unknown to make people stop, to fulfill art's purpose as change maker. Art and music as art is truth in a play. Only geekles set limits on their future, not understanding that the unknown is a friend. A New Wave Theater Bible Bulletin says it's better to spend more time on where you're going than where you've been. Does that mean we're timeless? We can just bounce off the bumpers of burgerdom like so many abandoned shopping carts. In the 60s, it was never trust anyone over 30. In the new music 80s, it's never trust anyone who's alive. In the 50s, it was ban the bomb. In the 80s, it's which bomb? We've forgotten the atomic lessons of yesterday in a hopeless frenzy of shredded plastic and vinyl vitriol. But there's still time to hem the hackles, provided we, the pioneers, share the same blendo vision. The people will not perish. Enjoy the show. But these were monologues that he actually didn't write. Today, in Regan country, it's only at funerals and times of loss that we allow ourselves to see the transience of life. For no one wants to be reminded of the passage of time, especially when they're having a good one. Peter treated New Wave Theater as a day job. When he really wanted to be working on his music. That's sadly where... Peter's story ends. He was murdered in 1983 in his downtown L.A. loft. It remains an unsolved case. Maybe that's the third thing that Peter's most known for. 
and obviously the most tragic thing that he's known for. Though they never met, Matt found a personal connection to Peter through his music. My infatuation with Peter started about 10 years ago, finding all of his albums, which there obviously weren't a ton of, becoming familiar with New Wave Theater. This fact has not been lost on the young, who today at the very least are making enough poetic noise to waken the dead and chill the living. years after I discovered his music, an oral history of Peter's life was written, which eventually led me to his archives. Lucy Fisher, as mentioned, was Peter's longtime girlfriend. She became a quite powerful executive at Warner Brothers and has gone on to produced a number of films. A story like mine has never been told. Very humbly, I approached Lucy to see what was being done with Peter's music archives, knowing that she was so close, and finding out that she was actually administering Peter's estate. She granted permission to visit Harvard and go through Peter's archives which had been sent there for safekeeping after his murder. It was the first of many, many times because the first experience was just so overwhelming. To Harvard's credit, they had at least put everything in boxes. Once opening those containers, though, there was just no organization whatsoever. It was like Peter's brain overflowing. There was sheet music, magazine clippings, tapes, VHS cassettes, doodles, notebooks, just a really random assortment of ephemera. The first couple days was more of a psychological gestation phase. What am I walking into? What am I contending with here? But if you've ever been through a personal archive, like sorting the belongings of a late family member, you know there is more to contend with than the materials at hand. Going through the belongings of someone else, reckoning with that spirit that looms over you. I know I don't love people going through my shit, So it's a very personal experience and a reverent one. You kind of have to respectfully acknowledge the mess. When it comes to cataloging one's own stuff, everybody has a different approach. He was thorough. He was not exact. So once we actually got to the audio portion of the archives at Harvard, 
It was a total game of whack-a-mole. The two-player game where you gotta whack the most moles! The tapes were largely unmarked, or they were marked cryptically, and there were over 700 cassettes and reels. Instead of being scientific about it and looking for like exact brands that may have matched the years that we were trying to capture audio from, we just transferred everything. We transferred every single reel and essentially created the database for Peter's archives at Harvard along the way, which was fun and also grueling. Over 700 tapes, there's just going to be a large amount of unused, sometimes unlistenable music or just audio detritus. Well. Speaking from my own experience, what keeps your head down during that exercise in tedium is holding out for the eureka moments. How far would you go before you sold your soul? Pardon? We set up these impromptu tape transfer studios. I was in one very barren, vacant room. There was no heating. There were no curtains over the windows. A lonely environment, super conducive to having an intimate experience with the project at hand. Going through mostly unmarked consumer-grade cassettes and pulling out a super nondescript C60 cassette that had Ain't That a Kick written on the label putting it in and then hearing in a totally different way six or seven versions of Peter's songs that I knew and adored. orchestration, this added level of production and sheen, it was truly astounding. And probably like an experience that only I could have at that time as someone on that mission, as someone so invested and infatuated with Peter's work. But yeah, for me, it turned my brain inside out. Now, of course, we have to cut to a commercial. In heaven, everything is fine. In heaven, everything is fine. In heaven, you got your good things, and I've got mine. Gong, 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 gong. In heaven. How do you go from that massive archive transfer to paring it down and turning it into a record? You don't do it by yourself, that's for sure. I enlisted my friend Matthew Sanders to help me go through everything. We weren't working in the same room. 
because it would just be too much. And we were allowing ourselves the leisure of time. We set up a pretty elaborate Google spreadsheet that linked to all of the transfers on a Dropbox server. Big shout outs to those huge corporate <laughs> platforms. <laughs> we would make notes on these linked reels in different fields, clearly being able to mark music that could possibly make the cut, that was definitely going to make the cut, and that was definitely not going to make the cut. Through collaborative feedback, we arrived at a much more lean track selection. No knock to Peter's capabilities. But surprisingly, after going through 700 reels, it was not insanely imposing. What we landed on was like, okay, this is the best of the best. I've seen your face, the taste of your smile. There's no escape. Time just stops and I. But we still need to slim this down. In that process, we started sequencing, working with really long sequences of songs just to see what was working and what wasn't. There was another process of elimination, and then we ended up where we needed to end up, but still didn't have everything we needed to complete the story. So we had to go to Warner Brothers to license a few tracks. I'm a little hot dog on the grill, yeah. Your love is hot, but that's the thrill. I'm happy on the grill. The Harvard boxes, in addition to audio recordings, contained a hodgepodge of other ephemera. All right, here we go again now. Steady, hold it. We came across a lot of amazing photography of Peter that had never been seen before which ended up on the cover and ends up on the liner notes. Come on, Betty, come on, give me a smile. None super intimate. That's right, hold it, hold it. But quite a few okay. professionally shot, revelatory photos of Peter during that time. I have a problem here, I can't make up my mind which one to use. This was the time when major labels were splashing money around photo shoots. Any one would do, they're all good. Uh. Lots of contact sheets. And then an enormous amount of his notebooks with lyrics, with to-do lists, phone numbers, a lot of anecdotal questions. What do you look for in a relationship? Written mostly in pencil, posed to himself, posed to other people. So because any expectation makes it unspontaneous? Notes to Lucy that you could tell he had affixed to the front door of their house. And then there were tons of formal proposals. Hi, I'm Peter Ivers, here to do a presentation of my musical, Nirvana Beach, whose jolly themes are sex, deep depression, and death. Last Friday night I saw the light I knew the love had risen you were like an angel shining through a mighty moonlight vision Ooh, we 
miraculous weekend with you. There were multiple copies of various scripts for the screenplays that he was working on, plays that he'd written Xeroxed from typed originals, and tons of sheet music. That spoke to his musicality. When his friends would come over and jam, presumably he was handing out this sheet music for everyone to follow. Get the style? Back at the Vortex, the song ends with the audience booing the band. One, two, three, four. You leave me alone. While Peter Ivers is most associated with contemporaneous new wave artists, his approach to songwriting has been compared to that of Irving Berlin and the great American songbook. Peter's sense of songcraft was not necessarily like old-fashioned, but it did kind of have a sensibility tucked away in some history of songbooks. One thing I do know, if she were as easy to keep as a The actual sonics, especially from the collection that we put together, they kind of have a feel of the day. But then you strip back the ornamental rock and roll instrumentation and get down to a very intimate sensibility. The night you didn't come, I had so many questions. I didn't know where and I don't know where to start. I checked the clock to my memory and then I check my heart Peter with a Fender Rhodes drum machine and harmonica doubling his vocal takes to me is just as profound as Peter with an orchestra behind him on the night 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 you didn't come on the night 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 you didn't come one of the things that I just wish I could hear now is where would he have ended up? What kind of music would he have written? And how would he have placed that songwriting approach to new movements in music or to new genres? It's a tremendous responsibility to curate what's essentially the summation of a life's work. How do you capture that magic in something that is consumable by the public? so long girl set yourself free and take your chances with me 
one of the things I was constantly reckoning with was my super fandom and the fact that most people have no idea who Peter is. So how do you present a case for Peter? How do you make his music approachable? A woman, a good song, a reason to go on. You can't expect a girl like her to want you when she doesn't know you want her to. You gravitate toward the hits first, but even then, the most accessible music is not that accessible. <laughs> then you gravitate toward the intimate moments, the human moments that everyone could possibly relate to. Why don't you let yourself go so she can let herself come to you? Fortunately, we had that in spades. I've waited so long. There were just all these incredible demos of stripped back Peter Ivers songs that took away the brass, that took away the production, and kind of left barren these amazing songs. I've started my song A sweet melody Come on and sing it In Peter's printed material, the revenge team came across a document with a particularly telling quote. Demos are often better than records. More energy, more soul, more guts. That was another Eureka moment for us. We're clearly focusing on a lot of his demo material, and he said it here in this broader context. It was just kind of like the invitation from Peter to keep going along the path that we're going. The context that that appears from is actually a proposal that he was writing to Warner Brothers, which was called the Peter Ivers Plan. We fade to black and we come up once more on Nirvana Beach Party. He was interested in starting an arm of Warner Brothers that dealt in music videos before there were music videos. And this time the images from the song become the set. You see a blue diamond moon cresting the horizon and a timeless island floating in the distance. A version of MTV. This is the way we want to do it. A video feature using film and video. Highly designed, energized, and hot. Part of that proposal was looking at the everyday life of musicians. Does that mean lick the microphone? Yes, lick the microphone. <laughs> I dare you. And being able to document the process of how different musicians create. Peter Ivers. His accomplishments are written in a memorial somewhere in someone's mind. That's the thing about video, it lives even without you. After six years of work, Becoming Peter Ivers was released in 2019. Once we'd landed on that selection and sequence, we hesitantly, I think I remember just like putting this off for so long, sending the final tracks to Lucy Fisher and to Steve Martin, our gatekeepers for the project. Being two of the closest people to Peter, we just wanted nothing more than to make them happy. 
eventually getting that selection and sequence over and from both of them receiving one of the most positive responses possible and the green light to go ahead with those selections. Then it became a process of, oh, there were so many other obstacles after that. We had to license a few tracks from Warner Brothers, as I mentioned. We ended up remixing a few of the tracks because we had multi-track versions transferred and just needed a little bit more life out of the music. We had to retransfer some of the cassettes because the fidelity was not necessarily the best on our audition transfer. And then we had to master the entire thing while simultaneously writing the liner notes, compiling the artwork, and starting the early conversations with press and our distributor and stuff. It's really a musical, a real fabulous vaudevillian. It's been really heartwarming. Making Lucy and Steve happy was the biggest battle won. From there, seeing other people that had been a part of Peter's life embrace the collection and participate in interviews. What's the meaning of life? And show up at the release parties. Are you having fun? That was the peripheral reward. And then the further reward is just seeing all sorts of new people come to Peter's music which is happening in very different ways from Amazing Press to one of Peter's songs is going to close this Friday's episode of High Maintenance. Oh yeah, you're, you're my favorite customer. We also learned that Peter is huge in Japan. We shipped so many records and CDs over there and receive such a positive response from Japanese fans. So there's a new appreciation around Peter. In the narrative that built up posthumously around Peter Ivers, the artist himself was often overshadowed by the tragedy of his murder. One of the efforts underpinning this project was to avoid falling into that trap. Having known the cold case story for so long, and especially for the people that surrounded and knew Peter, it happened. It's tragic, and it's tragic that it's not been solved, but it's the past. Beyond sensational tabloid true crime narratives, which, you know, f*** that. There was so much more to Peter's life. There was such a curiosity in his creativity there was clearly such admiration amongst his peers, amongst collaborators, honoring this incredible history of Peter's creativity. That's what compelled us the entire time. Having the opportunity to reactivate his music and to see how it works now, that wasn't even so much an experiment as just providing a little platform for it. We knew it would find its audience. It's not a super immediate process, but neither was the process when Peter was alive and making music. It was a kind of gradual accumulation of fans. It's become so much a part of me, I can't help but continue evangelizing and advocating that story. I'm in the Peter business. I'm in Peter's life for the rest of my life. Peter, why can't you stay with me tonight? Peter, why can't you hold me like I like? 
You've always got some place to go where stars are putting on a show. But I don't want you to. I wanna be with you. Peter, why can't you stay with me tonight? Peter, why can't you hold me like I like? I want a chance to turn you on, but when I turn around, you're gone. Ephemeral is written and assembled by Alex Williams and produced by Annie Reese, Matt Frederick, and Tristan McNeil, with additional mixing from Josh Thane. And special thanks this episode to Matt Worth and Sammy Joe Conchilio. Learn more about Becoming Peter Ivers and all of Revenge's other releases at igetrvng.com. Next week, Matt will be back, along with three more artists from Revenge's archival catalog. Michelle Mercure. Pauline Anastrong. And Anna Homler, a.k.a. Breadwoman. Until then, you can find us online at ephemeral.show.